Very special thanks to our speaker this morning. Nancy Takahashi will be our speaker, and I cannot wait to hear what she has to tell us. She's been doing research that she hasn't even shared with her students yet, so we're first on her list. Um, I hope you've enjoyed all the lectures this season, and I'd like to turn things over to Tom Falder, CEO and President here at the Alumni Association. He'll be introducing Nancy this morning. So again, thank you for being with us all season. I have to share one story with you, um, since this is the last board in the score. Um, we go to these <clears throat> different groups and groupings where we meet with um, our, our uh, fellow alumni leaders around the country. And I had the, my counterpart from the University of Alabama come up to me at one of these meetings and say, I heard that you all have an academic seminar on game day. Um, I said, yes, we do. And he looked at me very quizzically and he said, does anybody come? Kind of makes you <clears throat> understand the difference between certain institutions and other institutions, but <laughs> that would be the subject of a whole nother more in the score topic, and I won't go into that. Um, nonetheless, um, how many of you have, uh, have lived in the new dorms or the new new dorms or been up in O'Hill and the, in the, um, the cafeteria up there? A few of you have. Have you ever thought about the history of that area? No. It's just just kind of been up there. You know, it's kind of a, uh, I got to walk up the hill a little bit to get there. Well, today you're going to learn a lot more about that area. And it's an area that's very critical to the history of the university. And to help us with this story is uh, Professor uh, Nancy Takahashi, who's been teaching the School of Architecture as a distinguished lecturer since 1985, when she graduated from UVA with a dual degree in Master's in Landscape Architecture, as well as a Master's in Architecture. This year, she returned to teaching um, <clears throat> the first-year foundation studios and Ecotech site courses in the Department of Landscape Architecture since stepping down as the department chair. Her interest in hands-on learning initiatives have engaged students in design-build projects around the UVA grounds. This past year, she was spent working with the Architecture School and the College of Arts and Sciences to design a permanent garden on UVA grounds for students to gather and commemorate lives of fellow students who passed away during their time at UVA. <clears throat> in line with her design-build interests, she has served the last five years as the advisor to the school's EcoMod studio, which focuses on sustainable, affordable housing and has resulted in numerous housings here in Charlottesville, as well as new housing in South Boston, Virginia. As a member of the Resilient Communities Project Team, otherwise known as C uh, RCP, uh, Ms. Takahachi joins an interdisciplinary team of faculty in the School of Architecture studying the impact of climate change on coastal uh, cities in Africa and Asia. RCP has initiated a long-term long study of the coastal town of Winaba, uh, Ghana, which happens to be a sister city of Charlottesville. In the summer of 2014, she led an interdisciplinary team that included faculty in coastal geology and horticulture from the University Ligon in Accra, as well as the University of Sheffield in Hallam, and students from U.S. and Ghana uh, to gather data about urban trees, coastline, historic and sacred sites, water systems, um, as, at, and all those as they impacted by climate change in heat, drought, and sea level rise. So please welcome Nancy Takahashi. Well, good morning. 
Thank you all for coming. Um, I just, first of all, would like to start just to uh, say I'm very honored to be a part of this program. I think the goals of lifetime learning and of especially engaging the alumni with the, and the community with the faculty is such a wonderful thing. So I'm a great admirer of this program and a great admirer of Althea, who is a wonderful organizer for us. So thank you for... Um, as you know, uh, my talk today is on Observatory Mountain. And before I start, I probably have to address some issues about the name of this place. Uh, there's some confusion. Um, in the earliest drawings and references to this place I'll be talking about, it was simply called the mountain. There was really no meaning attached to it. It was a piece of land. Shortly after that, um, in line with Jefferson's interest to have an observatory up on the hill and the creation of the first observatory, it began to be called Observatory Mountain or Observatory Hill. Um, I have to say, uh, the name that I've been admonished not to use for this is O'Hill, which Sandy Gillum, the university protocol and history officer, tells me is a dining hall. It is not a mountain. <laughs> So you'll hear me probably jumping around between different names today, as I call it Mount Jefferson and Mount uh, and Observatory Hill, and hopefully I won't call it um, O'Hill during the course of the talk. So I realize that some of you probably don't know exactly where this is located. So I created this little map here to maybe give us some references uh, to help you. First of all, we're seated here in Alumni Hall. And as you know, uh, so Route 29 is coming down here. And the Academical Village is located. The, oops, the Academical Village is located right here with the rotunda at the top and the lawn. You'll see later on Scott Stadium, where we'll all be gathered to cheer the Who's on against Miami. And you see, you can notice the proximity of Scott Stadium to Observatory Hill. So I'll try and make references to where we are along during the talk. Now. If you think you don't know Observatory Hill or haven't been there, chances are you've seen it a lot. And for those who came down, who drive down 29 North or came down from Northern Virginia for the football games and for today's talk, Observatory Mountain sits at the end of Route 29. And so for a good distance as you're traveling along, it's actually clearly in sight and in alignment. And if you happen to be a marching band groupie and enjoy going to watch the practices, you'll, you probably would recognize that behind it is Lewis Mountain and Observatory Hill. And it stands as the backdrop on the western edge of the campus. And tonight, when you're in the stadium and you look up towards the west and you see the hill here, this is Observatory Hill. And in fact, an interesting little sideline that I discovered looking at some of the old topographic maps, Scott Stadium is actually located in an old stream valley that runs off of Observatory Hill, running this way down through. And so when they planned the stadium, they actually took advantage of the landform of that deformation to create then the bowl for the stadium. But you can also go back in history and start to know that Observatory Hill has very much been in the mental construct of, and the image of what we think of as the University of Virginia. Going back to some of the old favorite lithographs that have been produced over the, over the centuries, this early one, which I particularly love, showing the rotunda and the lawn with Observatory Hill in the background. 
this wonderful print here. Again, the rotunda and the lawn and the observatory hill is right here. And even in this uh, little uh, drawing that I found in the Special Collections Library, here's a hunter with his dogs. The Academical Village is featured here with Observatory Mountain in the backdrop. And, the, and in a very famous drawing, uh, lithograph by, I think it's uh, Casimir Bon, we're looking in this case the, actually the opposite direction, looking toward the east. So now the rotunda is on this side with the annex, and the lawn stretches this way. But you notice that we're taking, the view is taken from Lewis Mountain, which is actually the promontory which sits next to Observatory Hill. So, I, uh, so Observatory Hill, I think, is very much in our understanding, our, again, our mental, our, our, our pictorial view of what the university is. I got to know the place quite well uh, when I lived on the mountain. Um, I was for seven years from 2007 to 14 the principal of Hereford College which sits on the south slopes of Observatory Mountain. And I absolutely enjoyed my experience there, uh, living on the mountain, uh, living, in this living in this community of students who would gather at the house, or one of my most special uh, memories of it was working out in the Hereford Garden, which I'm very proud we were able to establish while uh, I was there. But probably my most favorite thing was to go out on walks on the hill. The hill is right there and enjoy the beautiful change of scenery during the course of the year, in, uh, enjoy running into other uh, people who are hiking, biking, or walking the trail. And even for those of you who go up to the hill, you'll know this special little moment along the trail. It's a little way station where you can go and open the door, get a dog biscuit, or get a lollipop, or read a little bit of, about some of the people that have loved Observatory Mountain. So it was a place of quite uh, of wonderful memories of walking through the woods. But after seven years, I kind of got a little curious about what might be off of the path. So I took a dive off the, off the main paths and just started walking through the greater hill. And I started to discover some really interesting things doing that. Old road traces, which uh, stretch over and across the mountain signs that people used to travel around and over this mountain, abandoned houses, uh, farm trash piles that talked about old farms that sat on the, in the woods now, now grown up with the woods, especially on the western side that looks out to Bel Air. Miles of chain link fence, it seemed like miles of chain link fence with barbed wire. And I'm thinking, what is this doing on the mountain? But the crowning glory of the exploration was to go up there and discover a nuclear reactor facility and made me realize that I'm certainly not walking in an untouched nature here. <laughs> that in fact, Observatory Hill is a place that's filled with history of humans' impact, of human activity and presence on the hill. And I realized this was going to be a very interesting thing to study. So um, I embarked on an um, initial study uh, working with a group of students on lots of different aspects of, it, of the hill. And one of the first things that we came upon was this map. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen it. You can actually view it in the Special Collections Library. It's a very little modest drawing. It's only about this large. And it's the original ink drawing that Thomas Jefferson drew to describe the land that was going to be purchased for Central College, soon to become the University of Virginia. And we can look at the map and see 
the parcel that we're quite familiar with. This was the 43 acres, and this was purchased from John Perry, a local entrepreneur and landowner. And uh, know this piece of land, famously the place that the academical village was built and a place that has been studied and examined and people know it in, in wonderful detail. But I looked at the map and I realized, oh my gosh, what is this? This is another parcel that was purchased for the college called the mountains, 153 acres. And I realized that Observatory Mountain, the place that I was living, was not on the periphery. It was not a late addition to the creation of the university. It was the central idea. It was the beginning idea. And Thomas Jefferson envisioned the need for these two components to create the college. So um, I set out sort of asking a question. Is it possible that the existence um, of two separate parcels, uh, that there might be a story in here? There might be a way to create a narrative that's not so academic village, so lawn focused, but maybe would start to incorporate the two parcels together. And was there some legacy in the fact that the original creation of the university was based on two separate pieces of land? So what I'd like to do is now take a look at um, a timeline, first of all that's going to take us from the beginning up to about 1860. And in this particular focus today, I'd like to talk about water. What was the relationship of water uh, being brought from the mountain down to the academical village? So we'll start. And we have to start a long time ago, maybe some 750 million years ago when the continent was being founded. And so here, I've actually quickly zoomed us into Albemarle County and we're here in this region. But we can start to see the distinctive alignment of the mountains here that were created millions of years ago when the continental, when the African and American plates were colliding with each other, causing the uplift and the anticlines. It gave us the very distinctive alignment of mountains in, uh, in this area. And so now zooming into this area, we can see it's a really interesting place geologically. Um, a lot of things going on here. Uh, Mount Jefferson happens to sit on this rock formation that's called the Rockfish Conglomerate. And we can see here in the section, the Rockfish Conglomerate, and it turns out it's a fairly resistant rock that while other places were eroding and uh, eroding away, this rock managed to maintain itself. And there are a series of high points here, Piney Mountain, Mount Jefferson, Lewis Mountain and Stillhouse Mountain that are promontories that are still very much up, uh, uh, present and for us to see. Um, interestingly, the Academical Village sits on this piece of stone, which I actually say I don't, I, I think it's a form of an igneous intrusion. But you can see that it's a fairly resistant ro uh, uh, rock also. Turns out it's a great place to build an Academical Village, but it's not a good producer of water. And so it sets up our story. So today, when you go up onto Observatory Mountain, you'll see um, uh, you have an opportunity at several moments to see what exactly is underneath the surface of this forest that's dominated by the chestnut oak trees. And here, where they created a parking lot at the Nuclear Engineering Building, we start to see the rock that's coming, the rock that's exposed here 
and understand that this rockfish conglomerate goes hundreds of feet down and is topped by this very narrow mattress of roots, organic matter, and soil that's amazingly supporting this large forest. And here's a close-up of this mattress here, maybe only this deep at the very top of it, and a little bit deeper as you get down in the slopes because gravity, of course, is, is moving materials down the slope. It turns out that the combination of the, of the stone with its fractures in it and this mattress on top of the stone, very thin mattress, ends up being sort of a sponge and actually can produce, some, uh, produce water. And the water then actually becomes present at various moments, kind of unexpectedly on the hill on the west side. You'll just be walking again on the trail or off trail and see um, a, li a little well house here. Uh, constructed out of concrete with this pipe that's running into it along the CCC trail that was carved on Observatory Mountain little fountains were a little fountain was created here where the groundwater was surfacing would been running across the road so they captured in it a little delightful moment of um, a, a, along the path When Jefferson came out here, he recognized the capability of this, of this land to produce water, and this is what he found. He basically, in the parcel that he found, uh, the, the parcel that was purchased for it, he found this spring valley. And it still sits out there today, and you can visit it. And it appears very much as it probably did 200 years ago. And what he, um, uh, some of the earliest notes about this are, having leveled from the Doric Pavilion, that was Pavilion 7, the first one to be built, uh, to the springs on the mountain, find the first two to be six feet above the water table at a distance of 1,100 yards. Um, 100 yards further is another spring, 26 feet above the water table of the pavilion. And still further, about 60 yards, there is another 75 feet above the said level. All of these are bold, good springs. And so Jefferson recognized this, and he identified this one spring. And it's still out there to see a very rather unremarkable space. But it's the first place where you actually see water emerging out of the ground. Now the story of the connection of that source of water down to the uh, academical village is a story that's been very well told incredibly well researched through folks here at the university, many of whom are in this room. And, uh, but the task was a difficult one. Um, basically, carrying water in log pipes with iron couplings all the way down to the rotunda. So I love this little, uh, uh, this little uh, excerpt out of a letter here. Having far, farther considered the subject relative to the water, I take the liberty of suggesting having the reservoir on the mountain placed in such a situation as to take the water of all the springs in at the top and the pipes leading to the university to run from the bottom. On that plan, you would have the command of all the water of the reservoir without the trouble of pumping. In the case of fire, water would flow in the greatest abundance. A handsome jet d'eau might be formed with the overplus water. It turns out there wasn't an overplus water, but I can only imagine this spectacular jet though coming down. So um, I'll point to this drawing up here because this, in a sense, explains the situation of Observatory Mountain with the spring on top, 
with Meadow Creek then making its way down to the base of the rotunda which sat here. And very interestingly, on an early survey that was done of it, it is a 100-foot difference from the spring to the bottom step of the rotunda. And I think that's a really remarkable coincidence there. And um, so down on the mount, uh, down at the ro uh, rotunda, I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking at this, but you can start to see some of the recovery that's happening of some of the cisterns when the water was brought down. Some wonderful recovery work is being done through the Office of the Architect and Facilities Management and Rivanna Archaeological Services to tell us what these cisterns look like. And just an aside, I have to tell you, because I was so excited to learn this, that the Peter Maverick map, which maybe many of you have spent a lot of time looking at, I certainly have looked at it for decades, has these little circles here, which I never really observed and was, was told those were where the cisterns were located. And it's very interesting that these two happened, these two cisterns happened to not be marked on the map. That's this one here and this one right over here. Now the next step in all of this, I think, is one of the most incredibly, one of the most crucial moments here in the story, telling of the story of the university. Because basically in 1825, right before the students were being allowed into the university, Jefferson noticed there was a big flaw in his plan. Because he had two separate pieces of land, but no control of the water that connected the two. So he made a major campaign amongst the board of vis and, uh, in the Board of Visitors to get them to take money from the library fund to purchase the land that would then unite these two parcels together. And so we can see here, parcel C becomes the critical purchase that happened, uh, connecting the original mountain with the academical village. And this is another purchase that was actually made to complete that and to unite the parcel together and ever affect the development of the university. He said uh, in an excerpt from the letter to the board, he writes, I received a proposition from Mr. Perry, the owner of the lands, which separate the two tracks of the university, which I think of so much importance to that institution as to communicate to the visitors by letter. The water which supplies the cisterns of the university by pipes arises in the mountain, a little without, meaning outside the tract. And the pipes pass on Perry's side of the line and, his, and through his interjacent lands. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. We have always been anxious to purchase this interjacent parcel, not only to consolidate our two tracks, but to secure the supply of water. If once it is sold out in lots, we shall never be able to buy again, but at exorbitant rates, if at all, and our supply of water will assuredly be cut off from us. So taking a look at a map then that uh, was produced about 20 years later in, 1850, in the 1850s, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not very good at dates, but in the 1850s is this wonderful map that was produced by William A. Pratt, who was the first building superintendent of grounds. And I love looking at this map because it indicates what happened and the consequence of the connection of the two parcels of land and the fact that the other parcel sat here. For the first time on this Pratt map, we start to see indications of McCormick Road, which was then to ultimately become the main spine, the main street of the university and its development from 1825 maybe up to, 19, up to the mid-1900s. So it became an incredibly uh, important 
development with this road up on the high ground paralleling Meadow Creek then from the mountain coming down to the base of the rotunda right here. The other thing I love about this map is that it shows the plots uh, that were laid out for the 10 professors to be able to continue to graze their animals and to raise their food. And it's very light little lines that are drawn here, but it says the 10 professors' grass lots and the 10 professors' gardens. So in other words, I think what had happened is that the small gardens behind the pavilions had just gotten too small. And maybe even the presence of animals in this was just something that was really untenable at some point in time. But we can start to see what that, what that westerly movement was with the clearing of the land by looking at this uh, photograph, which is actually a more modern one showing what was the golf links from Monroe Hill looking out to the west. We can see, I think Observatory Hill was right over to this side. The first signs, I believe, of McCormick Road coming through here. The grass lots for the professors with the access down to the water below of Meadow Creek. Now, uh, issues of drought um, plagued uh, and, and failing systems plagued the university for years after its opening. Um, actually, I was very interested. I went into the state climatological records and found out that one of the worst record, uh, droughts on record was 1830 to 32, which would have placed that right after the opening of the university. But there were many, many droughts that, could be, that, could, that were referenced in the Board of Visitors minutes, reflecting this constant struggle to got, try and get a good supply of water. My favorite map of all is this very faded map that was created, I think, in 1859. And it's the work under the advisement of the very prominent civil engineer, Charles Ellett, Jr. Um, his practice was up in the Northeast, but it turns out he was working on a project in Virginia. I think it was Richmond in 1859. And so the university was able to take advantage of him being here to be able to get his services to help to try and improve the water uh, works. And so this map is very interesting because here's the rotunda, and here is then the, uh, the newly um, proposed set of iron pipes that would replace the wood pipes coming up to now Observatory Mountain. And this is, in my mind, the first reference to this as Observatory Mountain on a drawing. So looking at this end of it up on the mountain, we see this rectangle here. And of course, you, these old drawings, you have no idea exactly what that rectangle meant. It's my uh, speculation that it was Ellett's suggestion to put a reservoir up there. Ellett was a big proponent of reservoirs during a time when the public was very skeptical about them. They were concerned that these reservoirs would be, would be stagnant and filled with all sorts of things that they would certainly wouldn't want to be drinking out of. And so Ellett had found himself often having to defend something that we now take quite normally, the creation of reservoirs to hold water and to be able to take the water out um, during more dry seasons. So he writes, the reservoirs have been tested even in warmer climates, and they have never been found to be obnoxious to this objection. The lakes which I propose are not shallow collections of stagnant water, but masses of pure fresh water to be annually supplied and discharged. And so although the reservoir was not created directly during this time of Ellet, Ten years later, the Proctor uh, Green Payton actually is responsible for having created the reservoir, which is still out there to be seen. And although it's dry now, 
the form of it is still very clear in the landscape up there. A small little curiosity about the other end of Ellett's plan was down by the rotunda. And this is an, un, an anonymous drawing, a, a, a rather curious drawing, shows the rotunda and the end of Ellett's plan up here, which was in a pond. And from the pond, they would pump the water up to the roof of the rotunda. When you do a little close-up of, of this map, you see these little lines. And I was told by uh, Rivanna Archaeology that per perhaps this referencing a room which still is, exists underground up in this area right now. And it's a rectangular room, uh, maybe 20 by 40, I think it was the description of it, and a brick arched room that currently sits underground and perhaps was part of the system that would carry the water up to the rotunda. So that's kind of the story of getting water to the university. There continued to be problems afterwards, for sure. Um, but what is clear to me is that water, the, the mountain and Meadow Creek were very much um, infrastructure, very much a part of the, un of the understanding of the creation and the making of the university. The river was visible. It was important. It was the subject of the Board of Visitors minutes. But after this time, it seems like Observatory Mountain seems to kind of fall off the radar screen. And um, in my idea of trying to create this narrative of the two separate parcels, I thought to myself, what other, is it possible that there might be some educational programs, departments, schools, some aspect of the cultural life of the university that might have attached itself to the rivers, attached itself to the mountains after this time period to really start to help create this idea that the mountain still counts. So going up to the mountain, um, I was able to trace a few, I think, interesting chapters in the development of the university. The first one is kind of a sweet, wonderful little story, uh, chapter in it. The, mount, the reservoir, as you could imagine, was a half mile from the university, and it was up in the woods. Up on, um, and so it made a wonderful little afternoon destination for people to go up and to escape for escape and romance and uh, seclusion. Um, and so there's some wonderful little references in journals and in photographs about this. So one of my favorite is the Diary of Jack Jones, which you can actually go on the observatory website and read it. It's a wonderful diary. He was a bicyclist and I think a great romantic. He would go out on his, those, those, the brand new bicycles with the really large wheels and talk about his adventures going out to Ivy Station, going to Scottsville on the weekend. Those are major distances to go on a bicycle. And um, on one of his jaunts, he met a Miss Nanny Harris. And so in his diaries, he writes, yesterday afternoon, I took a walk to the reservoir with Miss Nanny and read Longfellow to her. I spent this afternoon very pleasant in helping her with some of her sewing and in reading to her. So these are the diaries from 1882 to 83. Another one of my favorites is a, is a famous photograph, well, I won't say famous, uh, one that I love out of the Betts collection, and you can still go and actually take the photograph out and hold it. Um, in this picture, in this picture um, uh, Miss Estelle Berthet, the, the daughter of Professor Mallet, uh, was um, pictured up there with her umbrella and her beautiful dress, perhaps on a Sunday afternoon, with her dog, 
who's in the water fetching a stick. And so the understanding starts to come to me that the reservoir has this place in the minds of the students, this beautiful little sylvan retreat, a place that you can go up to and enjoy. Probably the most important thing that happened, though, in the hill was a story about water. And finally, about in the 1800s, the university just kind of got tired of having to struggle with getting water out of this tiny spring. So it went into a, um, a, a, a collaborative effort with the city to expand and finally create this, the source of water that they needed. And so begins the story of the reservoir up at Ragged Mountain. And so we can see some of the old photographs of some of the dams that were being built. Of course, now this place is quite famous uh, for the expansion that's recently been happening. And now this would be totally buried underneath uh, the new water levels. But here, on, here uh, uh, looking at an aerial from 1937, here's Scott Stadium. And here is the first treatment plant that accepted the water coming from the reservoir. And so you see the sand beds here. I, I think it's a really wonderful thing. Out on the ground would be deep sand beds that the water would slowly filter through to get clean and then sit out in these, out in these tubs here. In time, that water system expanded. And not only did uh, the waters from Ragged Mountain make its way over to the observatory water treatment plant that I just noted, but it actually then was fed out from way out in Sugar Hollow, and I believe that was in the 1940s. So the point I like to make about this is to understand the reach of Observatory Hill here at this point. No longer supplying the water or expecting that it's going to have to, to supply enough water for now a much larger university, but it becomes the point of purifying the water, of storing the water that then gets distributed down. So it's still playing an important role. And so you can actually go and take a wonderful tour, actually, of the water treatment plant, look at the deflocculation pools, and this wonderful room. It's still a sort of an ancient kind of room where the sound of dripping water is coming down as the water is slowly making its way down through these sand filters and ultimately, through a series of crazy pumpings, makes its way up to the top of the mountain and distributes it out to the university. A small little side story in the story of water on the hill in connection to it is the story of the Department of Nuclear Engineering. In the 1960s, uh, there was great excitement about the possibility of nuclear, um, uh, nuclear energy and what it could provide. Universities were building reactors, and the University of Virginia joined the bandwagon and created this reactor facility that was in operation for some 40 years. In that time period, they did all sorts of research, uh, but I think the focus of it was on irradiating materials for the possibility of medical treatment and for other kind of general research. Of course, one of the questions that came up is, where are we going to put a nuclear reactor on the grounds? The public had some concerns about where it wanted it to be located, not in their presence, and yet it still had to be on the campus. So the university selected the location to be Observatory Hill. Uh, to keep it kind of out of mind's eye. And, um, and on all of the places on the hill, the place they chose to locate it is on the north bank of the reservoir, the original reservoir that was built to provide the clean water. 
And so I think there's a little bit of irony in that, that the pond, which was, had such a history with the university, at least in the architect's drawing, is now listed as the waste pond. <laughs> now, I, in, in defense of, the, of, the, uh, of, this, of this story, of the, uh, of the engineering, nuclear engineering department, the reservoir sits here. The pond was not used for the disposal of nuclear waste. Uh, as a matter of fact, this was a, a, a small reactor test, an experimental facility, produced a small amount in comparison to anything at North Anna. They actually describe it as one three thousandth the size of, of North Anna plant. The amount of heat that was created here was so small it was actually dissipated out of cooling towers. So the water was not used for the purposes, although there were a few recorded incidences where part of the reactor pool had to be drained for repairs. And so the water was, uh, several times as I understand it, part of the reactor pool uh, was drained down into the reservoir and held there until it could be adequately diluted to meet federal standards to then be put into the public waterways. So there, that's just some of the, a few stories of looking at the idea of the uh, the continuation of a relationship with uh, the waters and the and the uh, the, the waters and, um, and the mountain. So uh, now I'd like to take a look at the area down below here in Nameless Field. So just to reference you, uh, that is right across the street here, Nameless Field. The field that we think of is um, the Mem Jim Field. What is fascinating to me is to take a look at what that field used to look like. Here's a 1909 image of that field. And actually, that's Alumni Hall right here. So Emmett Street would be running right this, in this area. Notice no buildings, the presence of water, increasingly in, in impounded areas, uh, trees, kind of scrub trees. This was a real riparian wetlands here. And the fence here suggests that animals were probably still grazing on this. Early topographic maps of this area show fascinating plan here, where these lines are spaced really close together, which indicates steep slopes coming down from Alderman Library. This was a kind of rolling terrain. And as people started to occupy it, ice ponds become skating ponds in the maps. And then ultimately, the water takes its form in a spectacular uh, pool that was connected to Mem Jim, the creation of Mem Jim, the largest building of its size since the rotunda, a magnificent, opulent building. And by the way, here's um, Alumni Hall right here. Um, and this pond would sit here. And this was Meadow Creek then running through here, coming all the way from looking like this to now becoming, as Fisk Kimball referred to it, the formal lagoon. And ultimately, this was drained in 1950s, I think. Um, and it was the last sign of water on Nameless Field. Because today, we can look at pictures of, Oak, of Nameless Field. And we know it. It's flat. There are no trees there. There's no sign of water. So what happened to this magnificent infrastructure of the creek that ran down to this spot is now buried entirely in pipes underground. 
one of the most, um, when I think about the stories, the chapters that happened on Nameless Field, they all kind of interesting run, interestingly run the same kind of uh, theme that has to do with something in the plant sciences or in teaching gardens. And it starts out with Jefferson. Uh, two months before Jefferson died, he uh, engaged in a series of letters with the professor John Patton Emmett, who was a professor of natural history. And, um, excuse me. Jefferson, being the great plants um, enthusiast and botanist that we know that he was, the great studier of plants, felt in the, um, at the year that the university was, um, I'm sorry, uh, very close to when he was going to die. This is um, two months before he passed away. Um, he realized that he needed something more in the academical village um, that, um, and that, one, that he wanted to have a teaching botanical garden there. So in this exchange of letters, he writes to Professor Patton, our first operation must be the selection of a piece of ground of proper soil and site, suppose of about six acres. In choosing this, we are to regard the circumstances of soil, water, and distance. I have diligently examined all our grounds with this view and think that on the public road, on the upper corner of our possessions, where the stream issues from them, the bottom ground would suit for the garden of plants and the hillside for trees. And so Jefferson laid out a very clear plan to take the waters, uh, to utilize the waters of Meadow Creek and the extension of the mountain then to create this, t to create this teaching garden. Now, uh, as I said, um, <laughs> Professor, uh, pa I mean, uh, Jefferson died uh, two months after he wrote this letter. And uh, Professor Emmett, who was uh, very busy with his teaching and his research and uh, expressed that he was actually unable to even take care of his own garden at the time, went to the Board of Visitors in October and officially asked to be resigned from the responsibility to create the garden. So there's some of us who still to this day have a little bit of uh, grudge against Professor P Emmett for having given up the responsibility that would have actually created a garden down in Nameless Field. So we didn't know what the garden looked like, excuse me, we didn't know what the garden looked like, but Jefferson was actually very explicit about what he saw, what he thought it ought to be. And a student uh, in landscape architecture, now a graduate, working with uh, Lily Fox Brugere, who is the, now the uh, director of the Center for Historic Plants, did this amazing thesis looking at Jefferson's plans for a botanical garden. And so the Jenny, created this drawing that explains the rectangular beds with the serpentine walls and the trapezoidal shot, uh, tra trapezo tra trapezoidal shape uh, with Meadow Creek running right through here. So the river, again, is very crucial to the creating of this idea. And then the hillside with two acres of trees. And we can stand down here in the garden and look up and see her speculations for seeing the rotunda maybe even seeing the anatomical lab here from the garden down below. But this, as we know, was a plan that was never carried out. So it seems that history sort of has been this uh, recycling of this idea, an attempt to try and um, implement Jefferson's plans. And so the next iteration of that is, oh, excuse me, it's off the screen. It says the Department of Agriculture, which is a little known story in the history of the university. I was really surprised to learn that we actually had a Department of Agriculture for some 20 years. And it came about 
because of a gift from Samuel Miller, who was a local resident in Albemarle County. Samuel Miller apparently lived in very, was very poor, grew up in very destitute conditions out in the count, rural county, but he got an education and he was able to make amass, amass a huge fortune in the textile industry in Lynchburg. He had no family, and so when he died, he gave his money to creating, for some of you would know, the Miller School in the western part of the county, but he also gave money to create a department of agri experimental agriculture in Nameless Field. And so here I've overlaid a map, which I'll show you in detail in a bit, but it shows exactly where this was located. Here's the rotunda. Here is Alumni Hall here with Emmett Street running. And so here is that marshy, the wetlands, the riparian landscape that we know, and how it was utilized then to try and create, to help support the idea of a Department of Agriculture. And this is a wonderful map. I've looked at it for years. It's dated December 1869 and wondered, curious drawing. Why would anyone even make this drawing? And I finally the other day was able to connect it. Maybe others have too. But connect it to the Board of Visitors Minutes, which in September of that very same year called for the establishment of the Department of Experimental Agriculture. And so here we see, again, the familiar water uh, form of Meadow Creek coming through here, the ice ponds, uh, the anatomical lab with the building which was become, to become the, the laboratory for the Department of Agriculture as they were looking at new kinds of tobacco, improved cottons, and the use of manures to actually improve the productivity of, of the plantings. But as I said, the department folded um, um, in uh, the late 1800s. So there are two then attempts to try and create some kind of teaching garden down on, to te uh, a teaching garden down in Nameless Field. The first two were unsuccessful. But I think in my mind I've been able to imagine that maybe this idea has been played out all, uh, and was played out in the creation of the Dell Pond, which I, I hope most of you are familiar with, right up on Emmett Street. In the um, early 1900s, a report came out, which I think was an incredibly important report. It was from the Office of the Architect, working with Mary Hughes, and the firm Andropogon Associates. And it was a strategic plan for water resources management. And in it, for the f finally, Meadow Creek is redeemed. It's brought back. And the story now gets told about the importance of this hill as a natural resource and of the creek that runs down from it. So we can look at this map that came out of the study looking at proposed protected woodlands. And here we are with the lawn. And here we are now seeing Observatory Mountain, a place that is to be protected. With the stream that now runs down, the familiar stream that we know ran down to the base of the rotunda. But if you note in this, this whole section from Alderman Road down to Emmett Street and up to uh, the railroad tracks at the marching band field is entirely underground in pipes. What once was the great infrastructure for the university has now been buried underground. And so when the opportunity came to build the Dell Pond and to finally daylight out again Meadow Creek, it became really um, the creation of one of the great, I think, permanent important spaces on the university grounds. 
The pond is uh, spectacularly beautiful, a place, a civic gathering, a point of pride, and it's all about the water and the expression of water of Meadow Creek once again in the life of the university community. While it's beautiful, most people don't even realize it's a stormwater workhorse. This thing is doing a lot of work here in the creation of its bays and through the water that winds its way down through here to clean the water, to reduce the flow, and to hold the water to lessen the impact of the, of the waters downstream. So it's a place that's beautiful. It's a place that's working hard. And when you go back even further into here or walking along the edges of the Del Pond, you start to notice the plants. It's actually organized with plants from the Tidewater, plants from the Piedmont, and plants from the mountain region. And so you realize, oh my goodness, this is a teaching garden, much like Jefferson wanted. And so I can imagine that finally Jefferson's dream of having a teaching botanical garden on the grounds at least has taken a form here um, in the Dell. So I thought we'd just end with a quiet moment back up in the Spring Valley that Jefferson knew that still stands there and appreciate the fact that along with the academical village which we enjoy today, we also have this other place that we can go and appreciate Jefferson's vision. So thank you so much for coming. Um, I, before, uh, I absolutely need to acknowledge very many people who are so generous in sharing their stories and their knowledge about this hill. I actually didn't know the information. I see myself as really the person who cobbled together lots of histories to try and create this narrative. But the folks here uh, uh, listed, I'd like to keep the list up um, and just acknowledge their great contributions. So thank you. got time for a couple questions, so raise your hands. It's my understanding that Jefferson also intended to have some sort of astronomical, I shouldn't say observatory, but some kind of a facility on the top of the mountain. Absolutely. And uh, I have even heard that there are some remains up there not too far from the present observatory. Mm -hmm. Do you have any information about that? Well, I can tell you what I know, um, and it's certainly an important um, point that Jefferson created, I think, the first kind of very primitive observatory that's up there, and there are drawings that, um, um, the drawings that I guess were from Jefferson that suggest that it looked like a place with maybe four rooms up there. I think it was a very primitive one later to be replaced by the current observatory that's up there. Um, and I, uh, it certainly was his dream to have it as an, uh, one of the goals of purchasing the land was for this observatory. And I think perhaps it even set off the whole um, idea of putting the science buildings that are up there. I can imagine there's a whole array of science buildings. But the only reason I didn't really talk about it was because my focus for this discussion was trying to be about water. But you're absolutely right. That was uh, a, a major interest of Thomas Jefferson's in purchasing the land. Hi. Um, 
I'm, I'm a civil engineer, but the other, the next phase of this might be talking about the wastewater from a civil engineering perspective. Mm -hmm. It's a concern when you have multiple people in one close proximity, um, how you deal with that. So that'll be an interesting possible topic for the future. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, um, people oftentimes confuse the current facility that's up there thinking that it is a waste treatment plant. And in fact, it's the opposite. It's the purifier of the water. Uh, that, that's the role of the hill now. But you, uh, the, that's certainly an issue. But probably not to be tackled. It would be tackled more downhill at a lower spot, not up on the mountain. Yeah. Um, thank you for your talk. I'm back in the way back here. Um, I, I went to Ohio first as an eight-year-old visiting my uncle at UVA and um, have walked up there as a pregnant mom living in Charlottesville and now walk up there regularly with my kids, so it's dear to me. Um, you mentioned the abandoned house on O'Hill and I, uh, Observatory Hill, sorry. I know that's not related to the water necessarily um, mm -hmm. theme, but could you speak more to that house and why it's abandoned, um, who abandoned it, what it uses were? Oh dear. Um, well, I can, I'll tell you what I know or what I think I know. Um, the Alden House, I believe, was built as the residence for the director of the observatory. I don't know when it was actually built. Um, the house, um, at, uh, at some point, I think, was under the direction of the housing division, but currently, I think, the astronomy department is trying to hold on to it for, uh, for purposes that might support the activities that are going on up at the observatory. But I don't think that there is the funding right now to be able to do that. So it stands there and hopefully is going to be protected. Um, I, I was wondering if you were going to go in a direction of doing something with that land as a park or something more accessible. I'm, I'm not really aware of being able to just walk around there and there's all the barbed wire fences and that you talked about. That was. Up on the mountain you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, mm -hmm. what do you, and how do you feel about that? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I don't know. You know, it's kind of interesting to me. The chain link fence with the barbed wire, I think, was part of uh, the era when the science that was going up on the hill was actually quite, quite secret and quite classified um, and needed to be protected. Um, I don't think it's that anymore. And so I've slowly been watching the removal of the chain link fence up there. For instance, all the chain link fence around the nuclear reactor facility is now gone. Um, but you know, an interesting thing I think happens when you have something chain link fenced off. It means that there are acres of that mountain where people haven't walked for, for a long time. And there's something I think to be said about maybe having some land that is off limits for, hum for human beings to walk through, to leave their trash. And I think it would actually be a really interesting study to examine um, what that vegetation is, what the ground conditions are in these fenced off areas compared to areas that are open to the public. And so um, I'm, I, I'm, I don't know where I stand on that, but I think um, you know, certainly walk, you, you were asking about just walking around the hill and um, you know, certainly I encourage everyone to go off track and see what you can find. It's really fascinating. I, I have two questions. My own. Um, the first question is, 
Um, do you know if the university has any other plans to bring water up to the surface level in other areas? And my second question is, is the nuclear reactor still being used? I, I honestly don't, I couldn't, would not be the person to speak to the first question about uh, water, but because um, um, I, I don't know the specifics of it. But I think the master plan is calling for as much daylighting of Meadow Creek as possible when the opportunity arises. So I'm expecting in time, we'll see that happening. Actually, it's happening. There are many places now on the grounds where streams that used to be uh, residing underground are, have now been surfaced up. At the Emmett Street Garage is a wonderful project there um, and down at Meadow Creek. Uh, your second question was? Oh, the nuclear reactor. Yes, it's the building stands, but it's now a general research building um, with offices in it. The nuclear reactor was decommissioned uh, when it was closed, I think in two, uh, 1999. The university spent a lot of money and many years uh, going through the proper procedures for decommissioning the building. And you can walk around the building and see all sorts of drill holes taken every 10 feet in the building to check for contamination of the surfaces. So now it's just, it's, it's more of an uh, uh, engineering research building. Thank you all so much for coming. Before we head out today, uh, on behalf of Lifetime Learning and Alumni and Parent Engagement and the Alumni Association, we want to thank Nancy Takashi for sharing that wonderful piece of knowledge with us today. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for coming. Let's give another round of applause to Nancy for sharing that information today. Thank you so much.